0: Mr. Chief Justice,
1: please the court. I sure do need your help
2: and support. And then most would say, well, Judge, you know, I'll do whatever I can to help you.
1: All that matters is the money. This is Life of
3: the Law. I'm Nancy Mullane. Last week, the U.S. Supreme Court issued a surprising decision. They'd accepted a challenge to Florida's law that bans judges from personally asking for campaign contributions. The court seemed poised to roll back another campaign finance law, just as they had in the Citizens United case. But this time was different. Chief Justice John Roberts joined the liberal wing and upheld the state's ban. He wrote, Judges are not politicians, even when they come to the bench by way of the ballot. But the case doesn't require states to ban this sort of personal fundraising. Several states allow judges to openly ask for money, including Alabama. The state also allows partisan judicial elections. It's perhaps not surprising that judges in the states have run some of the most expensive and negative campaigns in the country. Reporter Ashley Cleek has been looking into how these elections have affected the nature of justice in Alabama.
2: When Pam Bashab first started campaigning to be a judge in Alabama, back in the 1980s, it was literally a family affair.
1: My husband was a big help, my friends, my 36 cousins. (laughs) I have 36 first cousins.
2: Bashab remembers her whole campaign costing around $20,000. She made speeches at church potlucks and county fairs. She would stand at the podium... Hold up a house window, and say,
1: This is my window of opportunity. We need to get some women in there, and we need to get some Republican women in there.
2: I know. It's so folksy. And it worked. She won. So fast forward to 2000. Bashab's been a judge for around 12 years. And she decides to run for the Alabama Supreme Court. Bashab's a Republican, so in order to run, she has to go see a man named Winton Blunt.
1: There are certain power brokers that you have to go see, and he was the head of the Republican
2: Party. Blunt was also the president of the Business Council of Alabama, the local wing of the Chamber of Commerce. Bashab visited Blunt at his mansion in Montgomery, the state capitol.
1: And I told him I wanted to run for uh, the Alabama Supreme Court. He said, no, no, we've already decided who's going to run- be running, and you won't be yet. And I said, but why? And he said, because there was a business in Alabama where a judgment had been rendered by a jury out of my court in Baldwin County. And they had gotten much less than they had wanted, but they had gotten a multi-million-dollar judgment. And he said, because that verdict came out of your court, you will never be on the Alabama Supreme Court. I said, my husband is the chairman of the Republican Party here in Montgomery County. That does not matter. We started the first Republican women's group in Baldwin County. That does not matter. And he'd say, all that matters is the money, and you're not going to get it. And he was ultimately right.
2: In the decade between Bishab's first grassroots campaign and her attempt at the Supreme Court, judicial elections radically changed. They'd become a lot more expensive and partisan, and it's totally transformed how judges do their job in Alabama and other states where they're elected. Electing judges was originally a reform measure. This was America in the mid-1800s. States were joining the union, and many decided the most democratic choice was to elect their judges. Nine states, including Alabama, opted for partisan judicial elections. For decades, judicial elections were quiet and inexpensive. In the South, Democrats controlled the court, because historically they always had. But in the 1980s and 90s, juries started awarding big verdicts in tort cases. Towards a legal term. It's when a person or company has to pay damages for harming someone. That money is supposed to do two things. One, compensate the person harmed. And two, discourage the same thing from happening again. As verdicts climbed into the millions and billions, the business community looked for a way to turn them around. They focused on electing judges, specifically Republican judges, who would be on their side. Business groups funneled millions into election campaigns. Plaintiff's attorneys responded by giving millions to Democratic candidates. Some of the money pays for mailers and campaign events, but most of it's spent on TV ads.
0: An Alabama courtroom can be a pretty tough place. Only someone who's had to sit on this bench deciding murder and death penalty cases knows how important it is to our family's safety. Thank goodness we have judges like Greg Shaw.
2: And then there are attack
0: ads. Convicted of rape and murder, Ronaldo Adams was sentenced to death, but now Adams is off death row thanks to Chief Justice Drayton Neighbors and the Alabama Supreme Court using a...
3: When activist court. judges on Iowa Supreme Court imposed gay marriage, they were the only judges within 1,200 miles to reach such a radical conclusion. If they can redefine marriage, none of the freedoms we hold dear are safe from judicial activism.
0: Lee Parrish and Roger Wheeler were
1: sentenced to death for ruthlessly murdering pregnant women. But former Justice Janet
3: Stumbo voted to reverse both convictions. Not one of the other six justices agreed with Janet Stumbo when she wrote...
2: The judges attacked in these ads ruled on complicated, controversial cases but their decisions were shrunk into sound bites. Former Justice Otto Krause of the California Supreme Court admitted these types of attacks sparked fear into judges. Trying to ignore the pressure of an election, Krause joked, was like, quote, trying to ignore a crocodile in your bathtub when you go to shave in the morning. But some have embraced elections, arguing judges should care how the public views their decisions. In Alabama, former Justice Harold C. was one of the first judges elected in these new judicial campaigns.
0: I won, and, and and the court changed, because it was out of step with the view Alabama voters have of what a judge is supposed to do. Uh, and, and, and yeah, it cost a lot of money to get that message out. And yes, there was a dramatic swing. It was my intention to start that.
2: And C. has been through brutal campaigns. In 1994, there were rumors flying that his opponent was a pedophile, that C was having an affair, C remembers being confronted by his daughter.
0: My then 16-year-old daughter was waiting for me with a legal pad, and she went through a whole list of, of you know, really uh, awful things that a 16-year-old shouldn't have to uh, deal with.
2: Despite all this, C believes in judicial elections. He thinks voters should be able to remove judges who aren't in step with their values. The swing he's talking about also happened in Texas, By 1999, the Texas Supreme Court had changed from all Democrat to all Republican. And, C says, if voters are unhappy, the court will swing again.
0: I don't anticipate you'll see a big shakeup unless and until they look at it and say, whoa, they're not doing what we think they ought to be doing. And if that happens, it'll take time before that message comes home. But when it does, there there will be another swing.
2: C doesn't think that'll happen anytime soon. He says the business community helped the public understand what was wrong with the courts.
0: So that money is being spent. Why? Because what the judge decides makes a difference that is significant in dollars to the parties who are funding those elections.
1: Raising the money is a deplorable way to spend your time.
2: That's former Alabama Chief Justice Sue Bell Cobb. She was on the court with C. Cobb's a Democrat. In fact... She was the last one elected to the Alabama Supreme Court. As a Democrat, Cobb solicited money from lawyers, who are probably going to appear before her in court. So she would call, reminisce about law school, and then say, I sure do need your help and support. And then most would say, well, judge, you know, I'll do whatever I can to help you. And then I'd put on my finance director. Um, So help and support means cash. It was semantics, wasn't it? Just recently, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that states can prohibit judges from personally asking for money. But in nine states, including Alabama, judges are allowed to openly solicit contributions. And Cobb was good at fundraising. Her election in 2006 was the second most expensive judicial election in U.S. history. She raised $2.6 million. Her opponent outspent her with $5 million. Now, Cobb openly opposes judicial elections.
1: Elections in any state where a judge has to raise money, it has a negative impact on justice.
2: It has a negative impact on the people's faith in the court system, and those things are intertwined. And she's right. People don't trust the courts. It's a paradox. The great majority of Americans say they prefer elections to appointments. But in the same survey where Americans say they want elections, they admit they are distrustful of the process. Surveys show that 76% of Americans believe that campaign money influences judges' decisions. Judging is different, but yet when you're asking for money, people get the false impression that you're going to rule like they want you to rule. It's not always a false impression. Sometimes judges do rule in favor of their contributors. In 2006, an investigation by The New York Times reported that judges on Ohio's Supreme Court ruled for groups who had donated to their campaigns about 70% of the time. In West Virginia, a coal executive, Don Blankenship, who had a case before the state Supreme Court, spent $3 million to help elect Brent Benjamin. Benjamin won election to the state Supreme Court, then voted in favor of Blinkenship's business in a civil case. This caused a huge scandal. Photos surfaced of the two vacationing on a boat together. The case was appealed all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. The court decided against Blinkenship and ruled that judges must recuse themselves from cases where there's perceived bias. That Supreme Court decision stops the most blatant corruption. But nevertheless, some elected judges clearly share the perspective of their contributors on tort cases. Between 2002 and 2011, the Alabama Supreme Court wrote opinions reversing 72% of plaintiff's jury verdicts.
4: And this is actually something you may be interested in. This is the entire case.
2: Attorney Randall Caldwell drops a massive black binder filled with thousands of pages of trial transcripts on his desk. It's a case of his that was reversed by the Alabama Supreme Court. Caldwell says he usually throws all this stuff away, but this was a case he just can't shake. The case was simple. A woman named Wendy Baggett started going to a new OBGYN. gyn Baggett had high blood pressure, and her new doctor prescribed a medicine called Benicar.
4: Benicar has what we call a black box warning that specifically states that you absolutely cannot take it while you're pregnant.
2: Months later, Baggett became pregnant. She went to regular checkups and continued taking Benicar. At eight months, an ultrasound showed she had no amniotic fluid. She was rushed to the hospital. Her child was born at 32 weeks and died three days later. After a week of trial, the jury agreed that Baggett's doctor should have taken her off the medication and awarded her $8 million. The judge knocked the jury verdict down to $5 million, and the case was appealed to the Alabama Supreme Court. Caldwell knew it would be.
4: Well, they, they came back and, and they reversed our case, and, and I was devastated. I was upset. To the point, I mean, I, I question why I'm doing this for a living. You know, even when you think you've made a difference, we can take it all from you with a stroke of a pen.
2: Baggett and her husband settled with the doctor's malpractice insurance for an undisclosed amount. Now, Caldwell's pretty much stopped trying medical malpractice cases. Does Caldwell believe the Alabama Supreme Court is corrupt? No. He just believes that businesses back judges who share their opinions.
4: They support those candidates because they know those candidates have certain ideals and and visions um, of how they see these cases.
2: In any democratic process, there are winners and losers. And thanks to judicial elections, it's probably less expensive to run a business in Texas or Alabama but if you've been injured or maimed, or God forbid, affected by a wrongful death, you might wish you were somewhere else. For Life of the Law, I'm Ashley Cleek,
3: And I'm Nancy Mullane. In this next segment, we're going to take a close look at what the Supreme Court justices were asked to consider in the latest judicial fundraising case, williams U. Lee versus Florida State Bar.
5: The petitioner in this case, Ms. William Julie, was running for a trial court judge near Tampa. And in the course of her campaign, she sent out a mass mailing that she signed requesting campaign donations. Notably, the mailing did not actually result in any campaign donations. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, the Judicial uh, Conduct Board sanctioned uh, Ms. William Julie for running afoul of The Judicial Code of Conduct 7C1, which prohibits any personal solicitation, be it in person, by phone, or by mail. I'm Matthew Menendez. I'm counsel with the Brennan Center for Justice at NYU School of Law in the Democracy Program.
3: Menendez coordinated amicus briefs for the court hearing and was there for oral arguments. Before the decision came down, we asked him to take us through some of the most interesting moments and we called him back afterwards to see what he thought of the court's opinion. We'll hear that at the end, but first you'll hear from four justices, Antonin Scalia, Anthony Kennedy, Sonia Sotomayor, and Stephen Breyer. You'll also hear the lawyer for petitioner, Williams Yulee, Andrew Pincus. In the oral arguments, you can hear the justices wrestling with the ethical and practical ramifications of having judges personally ask for campaign contributions. Here's Justice Scalia addressing Attorney Pincus. What,
0: what, what about the interest in uh, judicial dignity? Well, and there's stuff we don't let judges do that we let other people do, uh, such as uh, it's at least a tradition. I'm not sure whether it's in any ethical rules, but let's assume it it, it was in ethical rules that judges do not respond uh in uh, op-ed pieces to criticisms of their decisions, all right? John Marshall did that, but he did it anonymously. <laughs> Let, let's assume that that rule is written into uh, uh judicial ethics. W- w- would that stand?
5: In this particular case, the speech at issue is essentially the message, and please give me money. A uh, judicial candidate can say anything else. But the request for money must come through a third party. And there's a legitimate concern that with the realities of political campaigns costing money, there can be the appearance or reality of quid pro quo corruption. Well, it's an interesting question from Justice Scalia, and it's unclear whether he is, uh, in fact, buying that argument or if he is trying to bait the attorney to engage with him on an issue where he thinks the attorney does not have a strong point. I think that is something Justice Scalia seems to enjoy doing from the bench, and uh, it's not always easy to tell which course he's taking.
3: The narrow question at issue is this Is there really a difference between a judge who asks for money directly and one who asks? through a committee. Next, you'll hear Attorney Andrew Pincus arguing on behalf of Ms. Williams-Yulee and Justice Anthony Kennedy.
0: A second problem is uh, the particular scheme that Florida has adopted here, which, as I said, does uh, allow the judge involvement in the contribution system, the judge can know who's solicited, can know who gives, and can write thank you notes. So once Florida makes those decisions, the decision to prohibit... Well, so how can the judge not know, especially if some states want disclosure? Is the judge supposed to not read the disclosure list? Everybody else does, he doesn't?
5: Well, I think it's an interesting question from Justice Kennedy, and um, it reflects that Since Justice O'Connor left the bench uh, about 10 years ago, there are no sitting judges who have elective experience. Justice O'Connor had been elected as a legislator and as a judge in Arizona, and I believe this court might benefit from having one of its members uh, sitting in deliberations who has some firsthand experience in the issues that
4: they're regulating.
3: Justice Sonia Sotomayor then tried to bring things down to a more practical approach.
4: Can I go back to judicial dignity, coercion? It's very, very, very rare that either by letter or by a personal call that I ask a lawyer to do something, whether it's serve on a committee, help organize something, um, do whatever it is um, that I'm asking, that that lawyer will say no. Isn't it inherent in the lawyer-judge context that people are going to say yes?
5: So Justice Sotomayor's question about asking lawyers and litigants and people who appear before her for favors, I think reflects that judges are aware that their status gives them um, unique influence. And I think it's... Well when a, I can say whenever, whenever a judge emails me with a request, I, I give it particular attention, even if I don't appear in front of them. Um, you, want, you want to keep judges
0: happy.
3: Finally, here's Justice Stephen Breyer.
0: "Justice shall not be sold, nor shall it be denied. I mean, that's at least 800 years old, and if that defines the role of the judge, which I think it does, you're saying that it isn't. It, it is a you do look to. The degree to which you are interfering with the free speech, which is some degree, some, and it's not speech, it's really how you solicit money. And on the other side, how that interferes with that basic role of the judge.
5: Justice Breyer really puts his finger on a important aspect of this case, which is that to the extent there is any infringement on speech, it is incredibly narrow. It is only saying, and please give me money. And that same message can still be conveyed to the same people via an intermediary in a justice's campaign committee. And I think there is a sense from some of the justices that electing judges does not make much sense to them, and that states would be well served to select their judges differently. But that if states choose to tap the legitimizing force of democratic elections and filling the their judiciary, then, um, that comes with all of the messy uh, day-to-day campaign activities that any other election does. And once uh, states have chosen elections, you're in for a penny, you're in for a pound.
3: That was in January. Last week, the court ruled that states can impose limits on judicial fundraising. It was an unusual split, with Chief Justice John Roberts joining the court's liberal wing. Justice Scalia. Kennedy, Thomas, and Alito dissented. We called Menendez back to see what he thought of the decision.
4: The opinion shows that the majority of the court is very concerned that judges, while some may have to run in elections, are not perceived as or functioning as politicians. Uh, The opinion really emphasizes that a judge may not show bias or favor to anyone in a courtroom, regardless of whether that person has or has not supported their campaign.
3: And, he says, this is a good thing.
4: This is the best day I've had at work in three years. (laughs) Um, It's a very interesting opinion as well because it is a pragmatic opinion. Um, Some of the criticisms of the Supreme Court's recent campaign finance jurisprudence uh, have focused on how they tend to be very theoretical rather than addressing the reality of how political campaigns operate. And in this case, the justices really seem to understand some of the realities of the campaign. Uh, In one of my favorite lines from the opinion, Chief Justice Roberts notes that, quote, the identity of the solicitor matters, as anyone who has encountered a Girl Scout selling cookies outside a grocery store can attest, close quote.
3: Menendez says in the short term, the decision means that states that ban this kind of judicial solicitation can continue to do so, and more broadly speaking, we might start to see states experiment with other ways to insulate judges from the perception that they might be beholden to donors. This episode of Life of the Law was produced by Ashley Cleek and Casey Miner. Michael May is our managing editor, Caitlin Prest, our senior producer— created the sound design with music by Matthew Dar. Howard Gelman at KQED Studios in San Francisco was our engineer. Special thanks to Matthew Menendez and the Brennan Center for Justice in New York City. Life of the Law is a nonprofit project of the Tide Center and we're part of the Infinite Guest Network of podcasts from American public media. You can also find Life of the Law on PRX, Public Radio Exchange, and on our website, lifeofthelaw.org. We're funded by the National Science Foundation, the Open Society Foundations, the Law and Society Association, the Proteus Fund, and by you. This summer, we're looking for a couple of interns to work with us at Life of the Law to build our outreach and content. If you're interested, send an email to me at nancy.mullain at lifeofthelaw.org. This is Life of the Law. Thanks for listening.